Our Father, it was the psalmist who said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I shall live. We are grateful that this, is, uh, this, this moment of prayer is not just a religious exercise. We don't do it because it's a ritual. We don't do it because it is expected when you're in church to do it. We do it because you are the living God. We do it because you have invited us to pour out our hearts before you. Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And, and the immediate question would be, well, then why would we pray if he knows what we need before we ask? And then in the next line after that, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Even though the Father knows what we need before we ask, when you pray, pray like this. And when we think that through, we realize he was teaching us that, that prayer is not for you, it is for us. Uh, pressure is a release valve. Uh, prayer is a release valve that lets us get the pressure off of our hearts. Be anxious for nothing. And, and quite frankly, each guy in here is anxious about something. So we pray. And we release it to you. Be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known unto God. And see, Lord, when we do that, then the next line comes right into play of that verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're not in this by ourselves. Uh, we're not alone. Our, our survival is not uh, on us. But you have given us life. And you have a plan for our lives. And you have already set the moment of our death. It's appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. So you've given us life, and you have a plan. And when the end of our days is reached, we are promoted to be in your presence. But until our work is done, you've made us alive, and you have promised to keep us alive. And you have promised to sustain us. So much of our, our concern and anxiety as men is in regard to our work. Especially we think of uh, for the guys who are out of work. That is one tough place to be. Especially in an economy like this one. And it gets... Uh, It gets very discouraging for these guys, Lord, because they have been working so very, very hard to find work. And it seems like at times they've exhausted every possibility. And when that happens, it's easy to, to quite frankly, to despair. But you know every man and you know every situation. 
And when our prospects are dead, that's often when you step in. I remember Ray Stedman saying years ago that resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. And a lot of times, Lord, uh, we're like Abraham. He looked at his own body. He's 100 years old. Yet you said you'd give him a son, but his body was dead. and His wife's womb was dead. That was impossible. Yet that very year, resurrection power came through. Now, you're still the same God. You're the living God. Our circumstances are not his, but our circumstances are as real to us as his were to him. So we look to you. And when we look to you, our anxieties decrease. When we look to you, and when we pour out our hearts to you, and, and when we take out even our frustration and our anger. So often, Lord, we feel like we can't be real honest with you, even when we're angry and even when we don't understand. And instead of telling you that, we'll take it out on our wife or our kids. But you know when we're upset. You know when we're frustrated. You, you, you know when we're angry. We might as well say, Lord, I don't get this. I don't get this. I don't understand it. It seems like you're against me. We've all been there. The, the psalmist said, when, when, I, when I remember God, I'm disturbed. Why? Because he's, he's not understanding. Sometimes we're not understanding what you're doing, why you were working the way you were working, or why apparently you're not working at all. So what do we do with that? We just keep coming back. And we trust you when we can't sense you. We trust you. Because we know from your word that you're in front of us. Because the Lord is my shepherd and he's out in front. Isaiah 30 says, you'll hear a word behind you say, saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. So you're behind us. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So you're on both of our flanks. Even when we don't feel it, the fact is you're there. Right there, our anxiety goes down. Whether it's uh, a deadness in employment, a deadness in a relationship. It, it could be on many different fronts. Uh, it may be health that is failing. We give it to you. My times are in your hands, the psalmist said. In the midst of the pressure of this life, help us to walk wisely and carefully. We would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in our study of David, and we are... Um, Looking at David and the issues of his life, we're looking at David and his uh, problems, we're looking at David and his uh, crises, we're looking at David and his stuff. The reason we're doing that is that David had his stuff, and his stuff tends to be our stuff. 
David's one of those guys where there is, uh, probably with David, you get more of a glimpse in Scripture, not only into his history, but into his heart. You know, there's some amazing uh, tools available to us, like um, the website uh, on genealogies. You can do family history. You can find out stuff that was basically inaccessible a few years ago. You can find some facts. You can find some history. I found my, uh, I found my grandfather's um, draft notice um, from 1919 on the internet a few months ago. Uh, so I know that at a certain point he was called in. Uh, I, it's just amazing. You can find certain facts. And when you study David's life in Samuel and uh, the Old Testament, other books, you, you can find facts about his life and events of his life. What's interesting about looking into the Psalms <clears throat> is that David wrote half the Psalms to be more exact, probably 73 of the Psalms of the 150. And what you get with David is that at times in the Psalms, he opens up his heart, he opens up his life, he puts it all on the table before God, and there will be times when he is angry, and he just lets it fly. He'll, uh, someone asked me last week, are you going to teach, are you, ever gonna, are you gonna deal with the imprecatory Psalms? What are the imprecatory psalms? Those are the psalms when David was just mad. Those are the psalms when he just lost it. Uh, you know, where he says, take their, take their babies and, and uh, dash their heads against the rocks. That's a guy that's a little hacked off. <laughs> right? And of course, you, uh, you don't, I, I know you guys, just from looking at you, you don't get angry like that. You're always in control of uh, your emotions and, you know. Actually, see, I can relate to a guy like that. Now, I'm not sure I'd, I'd say that, but I'd say some other things that might equal that just in a different way. But then you see David also. See, he's real vulnerable. He's real honest. He's real in the Psalms. You, you get glimpses of this. You get snapshots of it. And then, and then he'll suddenly switch gears, and you can see him feeling himself careening out of control, going over the cliff, and he puts on the emergency brake, and he says, Oh, Lord, try me. Test my soul. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lord, know my anxious thoughts. He was just a guy, just a guy trying to get through life like uh, we're trying to get through life. Sometimes he's on top of it. Sometimes he's under it. Sometimes he's overwhelmed. David had his stuff. He had his baggage, just like you have it, just like I have it. Here's what I want to look at tonight. We, we've been um, breaking this down. Uh, we, we, one night we did a man in the sphere, a man in his burden, um, a, a man in his heart, his overwhelmed heart. What I want to talk about tonight from David's life and, and from other passages of Scripture is a man in his guidance. Because we're always in need of guidance. Always. Um, if you're 42, you've never been 42 before. That's a profound statement. I don't know if you picked up on that. You can't get that just anywhere. You know, in the Bible, it talks about the Christian life. The metaphor is used of the Bible, uh, of the Christian life being a road, of being a, uh, 
Oh, you ever see the word in the, in the uh, scriptures, uh, the way, W-A-Y? What's a way? It's a path, it's a trail, it's a road. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. There are, there are two roads in life. You go on the broad way, you're going to destruction. You go on the narrow gate, the gate that is through Christ alone. There's only one way to get to God the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is no other name given unto men under heaven by which men may be saved except the name of Jesus. No other way, no other name, no other path. There are not many paths. There's one path, and if you believe that, they'll hate your guts. They hate the gospel. But it's the only thing that can save men and set them free. And Jesus said it, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's it. It's exclusive. It is not inclusive, it is exclusive. And Jesus said it. He claimed to be God, he claimed to be the Savior, he claimed to be the only way. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They lowered the man through the roof. Your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins except God? Well, let me show you a few things. Get up and walk. Well, who can do that? God. If I can tell him to get up and walk and make his dead legs walk, I can forgive his sins. The man with the withered hand. Stretch forth thy hand. On the Sabbath, by the way. They were watching him to see if he was going to heal on the Sabbath. Six times in the scripture, he healed on the Sabbath. And they didn't like that because they were legalists and they were bureaucrats. Don't do it on the Sabbath. Don't do it on the Sabbath. What? The Sabbath was their idol. Their idol was their tradition. Their idol was their ritual. And Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He looked at the man. He, stretched forth, he said, stretch forth thy hand. If you have a dead hand, you can't stretch it forth. Jesus asked him to do what was impossible, but he infused life into the hand, and the man did it, and then they were angry because Jesus had done it. And they were the religious leaders. Yeah, but they were religious leaders on the wrong road, on the wrong path, going to destruction. So Christian life is a path. Now here's the deal. In the Christian life... You are always on a new stretch of path. You're always on a new stretch of trail that you have never been on before. Aren't you? So if you're 42, now, now see, if you're 42 and you have a son who's 15, you can talk to your son about being 15 and what the issues are in that stage of life. Because that's the path he's on. He's not been 15 or 16 before. Oh, you've been there. So see, you're qualified because of your experience walking down that path to help him and give him some instruction. Or you can talk to a young guy just getting out of school who's chosen your field, your profession, and you can spend time with him, and you can kind of talk him through his rookie year uh, in, in medicine or in architecture or in being a welder or whatever it is you do. You can coach this guy because you're 42 and he's 21 or 22 and he's brand new. So you can mentor him. Kind of showing the ropes. You know, don't do it that way. You know, I remember I did it that way one time. Let me tell you what happened. Let them know you failed. It'll encourage them. Sometimes guys are always jumping on young guys. But you see, you probably made the same mistake he made ten times over. So if you did, be man enough to tell him it'll encourage his heart. 
Because you're not there to pound the guy down, you're, help to help, you're there to build him into a man. See, if you're 42, you've been on that path. It's a new path for him. So show him the ropes. So you've got to watch out for this and this. And how would you know that? Oh, you've been down that stretch. But you're 42. You've never been 42 before. You've never been 57 before. You've never been in your early 60s looking for work and experiencing, uh, they look at you like you're an old guy. And you say, I'm not an old guy. I'm 62. Yeah, but when you're talking to the 42-year-olds, you're an old guy. And they're looking for another guy who's 42. But see, you got 20 years on the guy that's 42. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? On every stretch of path, wherever we are in life, we're on a new stretch of highway we've never been on before. And because of that, we need guidance. We're always in need of guidance. Always. Every day of our lives, we're in need of guidance. There are times in life when we hit crisis. Not normal life, but a crisis will come into our lives. And when we find ourselves in a crisis, suddenly we, we are acutely aware, acutely aware, aware that we need guidance. Because when a crisis comes, inevitably you're facing some kind of potential loss. And it's very real. It might even be probable. It might even look to you to be certain because of the crisis. Some kind of significant loss. Uh, when you're in a crisis, you are facing some kind of imminent change that is not welcome. It's a change in your life that you never planned on. It's a change in your life that you don't want. It's a, it's, it's a change in your life that you hope would never occur. But yet here it is because it's a crisis. So what do you need when you're in a crisis that kind of uh, throws you into an orbit you never thought you would be in? What do you need? You need guidance. We need guidance as we hit the transitions of life. As we hit the, um, as we hit the uh, different chapters of life. And there are chapters to life. Every biography I have ever read, there are chapters. Every biography. I've been reading this week the biography of Charles Hodge. He was a great theologian, one of the uh, pillars of Princeton Theological Seminary, back when it was uh, a great seminary and stood on the word of God alone. And Hodge was a pivotal figure, lived in the late 1700s into the 1800s. I was reading a chapter about when in six years, did I talk about him last year, last week? Okay, that, I did in Birmingham then this week. It, sometimes it runs together. And it's wonderful being here in Pocatello with you guys. <laughs> I have no clue where I am, but... So I'm reading about Charles Hodge, and a very, uh, very productive man, very godly man, very disciplined man, um, very careful scholar, very stable, very reliable, very predictable. There was a time in his life where he suddenly uh, would go into great uh, fits of weeping. And his children, his grandchildren, could hear him in his study sobbing. Oh, why was that? He'd never been like that before. Well, in six years, he lost the six closest people in his life. And the straw that broke the camel's back was when his wife died. 
And he just, it was just too much. It was just too much. A mentor, a very close friend, several others. But when his wife died, that was it. And, and all of his emotional reserve was gone. And there was nothing left. He had trouble reading. He had trouble studying the Bible. He knew, he knew God. But when he remembered God, he was disturbed. It was a hard time for him. Never been that way before. Several years went by and he came out of it. Met another woman, godly woman. They were married for another 28 years. But see, he was in that season of tremendous grief and transition and crisis. What did he need every day? He needed guidance. He knew he needed guidance every day, but when life is acute and life is severe, you're especially cognizant. God, I need your guidance. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. There have been times over the years I've said to Mary that I'm going to rename my ministry. She said, what are you going to call it? I think I'm going to call it In Over My Head <laughs> Ministries. You can reach us at inovermyhead.com. You ever feel that way? You just feel like you're in over your head. When you are in over your head, what do you need? You need guidance. Because you see, there is someone who is over your head. He's in front of you. He's behind you. He's to the side of you. He is everywhere. And he has his eye on you because you're one of his own. He sent his son to die for you. He has a special family love for you because he's adopted you into his family. Does that, mean we, does that mean we lead a pain-free life? It doesn't mean that at all. Um, John Yates is a very solid pastor in Virginia. I, I've never met John, but we have many mutual friends. And he is an Episcopalian pastor, conservative Episcopalian pastor. And uh, as you know, many denominations are just going right off the cliff and and it's happening in, with the Episcopalians. And, and John and other conservative pastors and, and churches have taken a stand. Uh, he wrote this recently about what's happened about a court ruling. The sweeping scope of the judge's rulings still leave me quite surprised. Basically, he has ruled that all of our lands and buildings, including my home, must be turned over to the Episcopal Church. That whatever else the church possessed on the day they sued us and all of the money we had in all accounts for whatever purposes, designated or not, must be turned over. This is to the liberal branch. Finally, he asked that the Episcopal Church work out all the details on how we comply with these rulings. We have a few options in the form of appeals that we can make, but they are not very good. So even as we work out our legal strategies, we are cleaning out and packing up See, this is what you call crisis, right? This would be a potential loss that's more than potential, it's real. Uh, it would also be imminent change that's not welcome. 
We are cleaning out and packing up. We developed a thorough plan long ago for this, as well as for relocation, but in spite of careful planning, there are many uncertainties. Now watch this. But even the worst case scenario is pretty exciting. We may have no money and no property, but we'll have three or 4,000 folks to join in as we plan a new church. That's pretty good. That's the book of Acts, isn't it? <laughs> and the Lord was adding to their number daily. Do they have any money? Do they have any Christian networks? No. No, they just had uh, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and they were growing like crazy as they were being persecuted. He goes on and says, our confidence in the American legal system is pretty low nowadays. But our confidence, listen to this line, but our confidence in God to lead, inspire, and provide is great. Now see, there's some truth. There's a guy who's leading his flock and he's walking by faith. You don't have much uh, confidence in the legal system either, do you? How about the political system? How's that working for you? No, but we got a great God who runs it all. He says, this is an opportunity for us to grow in so many ways. And then I have this highlighted in yellow. I think that what helps me particularly is the assurance that step by step, we have attempted to be obedient to God, as best we know. That's been our heart, at least. Certainly, we have erred and strayed from God's ways frequently, leaving undone much that we ought to have done and doing much we ought not to have done. But our heart has been and is to be faithful, and God is merciful to those who are penitent, who depend on Jesus. Boy, there's wisdom there. He said earlier, our confidence in God is to lead, inspire, and, and provide. Our confidence that he will do that is great. You know what he's saying? Our confidence in God's guidance is great, even though we're in a huge crisis. But he's assured by the fact that they have attempted to be obedient. That fits what the Word of God says about Guidance. Would you turn with me to Psalm 32? In Psalm 32, the Lord gives a promise to David, a significant promise about guidance. It's just not given to David, it's given to all of his sheep. And if Jesus is your shepherd, if you could say with David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is my shepherd. Jesus is my God. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Master. Jesus is my Lord. All kinds of different names assigned to the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Any of the names of the Lord. The righteous run into it and are saved, the Bible says. Those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. So if you can say the Lord is my shepherd, that makes you a sheep 
The promise given to David is also given to you. The promise is in Psalm 32, verse 8, when it comes to guidance, when you need guidance. And here's the promise. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Could that be any more clear? God is not in the business of hanging us out to dry. So many of us who've grown up in church and we've, we've been in the Christian life for a while, we've heard so many different teachings on, on how to know the will of God and guidance and, 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 and all, you know, we're, we're all trying to find out. I just want to know the will of God. I want to do the will of God. There, there are uh, certain statements in Scripture that clearly say, this is the will of God. Uh, one of them is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Would you turn over there with me? Have you ever said, Lord, I just want to know your will? Well, then look up the statements in Scripture where it says, this is the will of God. Because if you really want to know his will in areas where you're unsure, make sure that you're doing his will when the Scripture is very clear. Let me give you an example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, verse 1, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Watch this. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the will of God. So if you're here and uh, you've been married a couple times and you've met some gal and you're pondering, should we get married or should we not get married? And what you guys have decided to do is to live together and you're sleeping together, you are out of God's will. Know it. You're out of the will of God. If you're sleeping with a woman and you're not married to her, you're out of the will of God and it's sin. Know it. Just know it. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Not that you hang around and check it out from sexual immorality. Not, not that you get as close to it as you can without crossing the line. That you abstain from sexual immorality. The Bible is crystal clear. You said, man, this is old school. It's the oldest school. And it's the best school. It's always best to walk in the ancient paths. God has never changed. God is holy, and he wants his people to be holy. Ye be holy as I am holy, the scripture says. Four, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Well, I just want to know the will of God. Okay, there it is. There's one clear example of the will of God. Is this easy? It's very hard. There has never in the history of the world been as much sexual temptation as there is today. At a click, you can be at a place you should not be. 
you can be at a click at a place that was virtually impossible to get to 25 years ago. It's a click or two away. You know what I'm talking about. They'll come after you. You open an email that looks innocuous, and it's not. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Do you struggle with that? Well, then how about your boys and how about your grandkids? Have you ever talked with them about it? Talk with them. Coach them. Help them. That's your job. You're a man. You're a Christian man. You're a leader. Well, I'm not sure I could do that. You could do it. Well, I'm not sure I could do it well. Well, how do they know that? All they know is the stuff they're crammed down their throat every day in school. Right? But if you just, with your halting, you don't know. I mean, how do you know how to do that? You don't. You just say, Lord, walk me through this. Lord, help me to get into their heart. Help me to coach them a little bit. Give me an opening here, Lord. And and I'll take it if you give it to me. And I don't know what to say. Well, that's okay, because you're saying I need your guidance. Oh, and what did he say back in Psalm 32? I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go, even with the, talking with a kid about sex. Right? Here's James 1. Uh, yeah, it does say count all joy, but that's earlier. What am I after there? The next one. Um, if any of you lack wisdom. That's me. Hey, Farrar. Hey, I'm talking to you. You don't have a clue. See, God knows he can reach me at in over my head. I don't have a lot of wisdom. So he's talking to me. When he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men who ask liberally without reproach. He won't hold it back from you. He promises to give it to us. Is that not great or what? Because are you, not, are, are you not baffled by some stuff in your life and you're really not quite sure what to do? I am. I am right now. And when I start getting baffled and there's a situation, even a relational situation, it's not the biggest thing in the world. There, there, there are two phone calls. There are two interactions. They're not negative. They're, not, they're, they're just a little cumbersome. And this week I've been praying, Lord, how do I best go about this? Nothing volatile, nothing, it's just, it's just kind of sensitive. How do I go about this? You know, I'm not sure, well, Lord, would you show me, would you navigate me, and on the other end, would you providentially just sort this out, because we've been missing each other, would you providentially sort this out so that we connect at the right time, so both of our hearts are in the right place, and Satan can't get a foothold? Would you do that, Lord? Because, see, I don't know when the best time is. I've tried to reach that guy three times. Dad, gum it, how come you? Well, maybe it's not the best time, and maybe God's guiding me, and it's just not best. So why don't I chill out? Am I making any sense? Lord, I give it to you. Show me what to do here. You lead me. You guide me. Let's go back to Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That is a great promise for every sheep. Now, it's such a great, it's such a great promise. Uh, I have a question. 
Why isn't it in verse 1? Why not lead the psalm with this great promise? Well, you see, the promise is in a context. And the context is this. When you are asking for guidance, if you are living in disobedience to what you know to be the will of God, it is somewhat foolish to ask God to guide you. Is it not? If you're living in clear disobedience in your heart and in your behavior to the Word of God, and you know it, does it, is it not a foolish, quite frankly, stupid thing to ask God for guidance when in fact you are practicing and continuing to practice sexual immorality with no break and you're just going headlong into it. I'm not saying we don't struggle with sin. We do struggle with sin. But, but I'm saying that there are times when what happens is we have given a, ourselves license to sin. We have rationalized sin. We are continuing in sin. The Holy Spirit, because you belong to him as believers, when we're in sin, he convicts us. But sometimes we don't listen to him. And when we don't listen, you know, your, your conscience is a nerve. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, it talks about false prophets. They are men who are... Um, they are men who do all kinds of terrible things. They're in the church. They're men who are seared in their own conscience it says, as with a branding iron. The nerve, uh, the, the conscience is a nerve. And one of the keys to the Christian life is keeping your, your nerve of conscience tender to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should be able to just flick that nerve. And he's got your attention. Make sense? Here's what happens, though. When he flicks that nerve and you know exactly what the issue is, and you resist him, and you keep going that way, what you've just done is you've put a little layer of callousness on that nerve. Because I'm going to keep walking this path. Okay, well then you're buying yourself some trouble. See, you've decided to wander off the path. He leads me, what is it, Psalm 23.3? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But every once in a while, I'll get tempted and I'll think, well, you know what, I'm kind of sick and tired of that. I'm kind of bored. This is a, and so we think there's a little bit more excitement, there's a little more sizzle in the fajita if we just peel off over here. And we know we shouldn't be doing it, but you know, and, and even we'll even say, well, you know, I'll just do it and ask God for forgiveness later. You ever done that? So you peel off. And when you start peeling off, the Spirit of God will hit that nerve of conscience. Just like that. And you know exactly what you're doing. And sometimes you just keep going. And, and each step you take, he's there. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've had it and you've had it. Every time we resist the Spirit of God, puts a layer of hardness on that nerve of conscience. And days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months. 
I remember uh, first time I ever did a pastor's conference, and I was a little bit shell-shocked that I was there because there are all these big-time... I was speaking. I'd been to pastor's conferences, but I was speaking. And I'm speaking... It's the first time I ever spoke with Howard Hendricks. And I got to tell you something. That was a... That made no sense to me. That made no sense. I got in the elevator, and there was Dr. Hendricks, and I didn't know what to do. I really, I mean, I just, and he goes, hey, Steve, how you doing? And you know what he did? I had a session real early in the morning. They, the, the guys that aren't real good, they put you on first early in the morning. <laughs> and there are about 13 guys in there. I don't know I mean. And I walk in there, and guess who's sitting there? Dr. Hendricks. Is that something or what? You know why he was there? Just to encourage me. That's why he was there. Afterwards, you go, ah, good job, Steve. That was good stuff. It was just great. I've never forgotten that. He showed up. Man. But I'm there, and there are all these big names, you know. I remember sitting, uh, had a dinner that night, and I'm sitting at this table, and they introduced me to this guy. Well, I'd read all this guy's books. And uh, this, guy was, this guy was really well-known, had a big church, and written all the... I just read an article the week before in Leadership Magazine he'd done. And uh, sitting there with the guy, he's got his wife there, and we're talking and just interacting, and he's telling me all this stuff, and... Got to get up and catch an early flight to Korea the next morning. He's doing all this stuff, you know. And you know, about ten days later in the paper, I read that he has been charged by eight women in his church for adultery. It was all true. I remembered my conversation with him that night. His zeal for the word of God. His zeal for the truth going to Korea to help these pastors disciple and fulfill the great... He's sitting there with his wife, who he has um, humiliated on at least eight occasions, continuously. So what would he do on Sunday? Get up and preach to his large auditorium, get up, and then during the week, he'd meet with these women that he had met through counseling, and then he'd go shack up with them in some hotel room somewhere. Then he'd get up and preach the word of God, and all you know, Probably had a great sermon on the will of God. Probably wrote a book on how to know the will of God. Hey, he's not the only guy we could name, is he? No, they're everywhere. How can that happen? Flip over to First uh, Timothy 1. Is that where it is? Yeah. Good verse 18. This command, I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Timothy's a, little, Timothy's a little discouraged. He's not much of a fighter. He's in a tough deal. And Paul says, hey, he's getting ready to encourage him. And he said, hey, don't forget the prophecies that were made about you. We don't know what they were. Paul doesn't uh, elucidate them. But... Uh, Timothy knew what they were, and Paul knew what they were. He said, don't forget them. And then he goes on and says this, that by them you may fight the good fight. Oh, okay, well, man, I want to fight the good fight. All right, well, how do you fight the good fight? Look at the next line. 
keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. There are two aspects to fighting the good fight. The first one, where are they? They're keeping faith and a good conscience. Yogi Berra said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Well, usually you've got to go left or right. And see, the fact of the matter is, where Yogi lived, it was out in the country, outside of New York City, and there was some acreage, and when you turned on their road, it forked, but because of the trees, you couldn't tell that the fork split, went behind the trees, and then met at his house. So it didn't matter. You could go left, you could go right, you're going to wind up at his house. It actually made sense. <laughs> if you want to fight the good fight and you come to a fork in the road and it says keeping faith in a good conscience, take it. You take both forks. You can't just take one. To fight the good fight and say, how do you fight the good fight? You've got to have God's guidance, don't you? See, why would you want God's guidance? Because you want to be in his will, and you want to be used by God, and you, I need your wisdom here. Okay, uh, so it's a fight. Every day it's a fight. We get confused. Sometimes we get vertigo. We don't, we're not sure where we are. All right, so metaphors are changing here. Fight the good fight. You've got to do two things, keeping faith and a good conscience. All right, let me tell you what keeping faith is. Keeping faith is a reference to the Word of God. How do you know that? Well, Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. There is no faith apart from the Word of God. Uh, here's Romans 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for those who come to Him must believe that He is, how do you know that He is? By the Word of God, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. My, fa my faith is built on believing what God has said and believing that God will fulfill what he has said. So I've got to live off the word of God. So keeping faith is a reference to being in the scriptures. So how do I fight the good fight? By staying in the scriptures, which give me faith. If I don't know the scriptures, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. You see this right here? Can you see this in the pulpit? You got a sword and you got a book. The Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. That's how I walk in faith. So keeping faith is a reference to the Word of God. It's putting the Bible in me. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. i got to be in this book. That's why you guys are here tonight. That's why you're here on Sundays. That's why I hope you, you carve out some time in your week where you're feeding on the Word of God. You're, Driving in the work, you, you, you're listening to John 6 or whatever you're listening to. You see? Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. You've got to put the word of God in you. Keeping faith. That's staying in the Bible. Okay, but that's not all there is. It's just not staying in the Bible to fight the good fight. It's keeping faith and... Note this, it's not keeping faith or, it's keeping faith and a what? 
good conscience. So the guy that I'm sitting with, who has written all the books on the Word of God, who's going to Korea to teach the pastors about the Word of God, who has the big church teaching the Word of God and shacking up with eight women during the week, there's no good conscience. Is there? See, there's your, there's your answer. It's keeping faith and. and, and, and when, uh, see, he did not follow 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God. That you abstain from sexual immorality. He knew that. He could parse it. He could write an exegetical paper on that. But when it came to doing it, he didn't do it. And when he first took that first step, do you think the Spirit of God pinged his conscience? <clears throat> I'm telling you. Do you think it pinged him the first time he kissed that woman, that first woman? Oh, man, I'm telling you. Do you think the first time he got in the sheets with that woman, he got pinged? Oh, yeah. And he kept going and kept going and kept going. And every time he did, he put a layer of callousness on his nerve. So he got to be, look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You can get to a place where you resist the Spirit of God, His conviction, His impulses on your conscience. You can get to a place where it's the equivalent of taking a red-hot poker and just slamming it down into the nerve of conscience and cauterizing it, and you can't feel anything anymore. I don't want to do that. And you don't either. But you see... Back to Psalm 32.8. I asked the question. That's such a great verse. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's a great verse. Why isn't it in verse 1? It's not in verse 1 because David had to do something before God could give him the promise. You see, this is written in the context of David's sin with Bathsheba. There are two psalms where David opens his heart before Almighty God in regard to his great sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, note how it begins. David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, this man, this pastor that I referred to, was living a life of tremendous deceit. And see, not only was he deceiving others, he was deceiving himself because he thought he could get away with it. Boy, that is the ultimate of self-deception, is it not? Your life should be no different when you're on a business trip in Vegas than it is when you're at home in Frisco. Yeah, but I heard what, I heard what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> well, it doesn't. Your sin will find you out. David says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When David sinned with Bathsheba, when you really take a step back and you see how he was maneuvering and trying to manipulate the situation, David was smart. He wasn't stupid. So he's going to cover his tracks. So, you know, he gets back Uriah and, okay, let's get him in here and, you know, uh, let's get him and get her with the wife and then I'm covered. I'm good. Well, then you know the story. That didn't work and uh, 
Uriah was faithful. He wouldn't sleep with his wife because his men were out in the field and they couldn't be with their wives. And so uh, David tried it twice, didn't work. So he sends him back and tells Joab, put him in the heat of the battle, pull back from him. So now he's killed this guy. And then after a certain amount of appropriate time had gone by, then David steps in and he, everyone, oh, did you, David's going to marry her and take her in and provide for her. And oh, isn't David a great, see, it was all, it was a big PR thing. That's what it was. David made it look honorable because he controlled the media. <laughs> just thought of that. just came to me. <laughs> Wasn't a lot of media back then, but whatever was there, he controlled it. They were in his hip pocket. So he just worked them. And for a year, he covered it. And then Nathan showed up. The prophet confronted him. You know the story. David, there's this man who has many, many sheep, just countless sheep. There's a little man who only has one, and this rich man went and took the one man sheep. David said, That's, um, who is that man? He says, you're the man. Whew, and he broke. For a year, David lived in deceit. Now watch his description of what it's like to live in habitual, secret, unconfessed sin for a believer. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. You ever experienced that? Sure you have. And the Spirit of God keeps working on you, and you're covering it, and you're hiding it, and all that. And what happens? It just, man, it just wears you down. It just fatigues you. You just waste away. There's no joy in your life. Even when you should have some joy, you don't have any joy because it's, in the, it's just gnawing at you. It's just gnawing. You know it's wrong. You know it's wrong. You try to escape it, but you can't escape it. You can't run from the Spirit of God. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. See, the hound of heaven was after him. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. See, unconfessed sin in the life of believer robs you of joy, vitality, energy, because you're always looking around wondering when you're going to be found out. Because you know, ultimately in your heart of hearts, you know you will be found out. You might deceive yourself for a while, but you know it's coming. You know it's coming. And see, when you, when, because when, when, if there's sexual sin, you're, all, you're a liar. Every guy I've ever seen that's involved in sexual sin is a liar. He's got a trail of liars because you've got to lie to cover yourself up. You're lying to your wife, you're lying to this, you're lying to your kids, you're lying to that. You're, you're just lying. And the problem with lying is, you, after a while, you can't keep up with it. What did I say to them when? Right? Mark Twain, who was no Christian theologian, but Mark Twain said this, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. That's just good old American common sense. If you tell the truth, you don't have to try to remember 18 different stories, do you? You just tell the truth. Well, finally, the truth was made known to him. And watch what happened. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. David repented. We live in an age, and it's always been an age, of two kinds of repentance. There is authentic repentance and there is synthetic repentance. There is real repentance and there is fake repentance. How many times have you seen fake repentance? How many times? The quivering lip. The tears. All the physiological indications of... A lot of times guys can give physical indications of brokenness, but there's no heart in it. It's empty, isn't it? You've seen it. Some guys are just pathological liars. There's another guy that uh, had an influence on me when I was in college, and he's just a pathological liar. And he has been, how long ago did that first happen? What was I, 20? For 42 years, he's still in ministry. Now, he's got to run around to different groups because he keeps getting fined. He'll get found out. So that this group finds him out, and then this group he doesn't agree with doctrinally. Suddenly, he shifts doctrine. Oh, he's one of us now, so now he can get away with it for a while. This guy's just a liar. Talk to anybody that's worked with him. Guys that worked with him for 25 years, he's a pathological liar. He'll look you right in the eye and lie right through his teeth. He lies when he didn't have to lie. But he's got a history of sexual immorality. It's, and it, it's all uh, synthetic repentance. Thomas Watson once said that genuine repentance is the vomiting of the soul. Boy, that's good. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience that is. <laughs> you threw up everything you got, and then you're throwing up for another day. That's, that is the worst thing in all the world. There's just nothing, but you're still... You, you, now, see, that's repentance. You vomit up your sin. Dear God in heaven, how could I have done that? You despise your sin. You loathe it. You're not covering, you're not excusing, you're not rationalizing, you're not spinning. You are vomiting, and you loathe it, and you hate it. Here's another one. Years ago, in another part of Texas, I'm doing a conference. Big church, you know, the big church thing. The guy's got the TB thing going. Oh, that was a great job. That was wonderful. Our men needed to hear this. So about three months in the paper comes out. He's got eight women. I don't know what the thing is with these eight women. But the guy had eight, this guy's got eight. They all came forward. That guy, you know, so now he's in trouble. And about three weeks later, I get a call from the guy, and he wants to meet with me. And I got to tell you something. I didn't like this guy the first time I met him. Because <laughs> he was too slick. He was just too stinking slick. If, if he had been, if I was looking for a Chevy pickup and he walked out, I would have gone to another dealership. <laughs> now I'm dead serious. He was slick. He dripped slick. 
that he calls me and, oh, I, you know, I, can I meet with you? So I meet with him at Sonny Bryan's over somewhere. And he starts talking to me. And all, and all that's happened to him, all that he's lost, all that has happened to him, and, and then his, his, he's lost his income, he's lost his position, he's lost his... That's, for 30 minutes, for 35 minutes. He said, but you know, Steve, I think I'm going to be in ministry in about another, I'm thinking maybe 12 months I'll, I'll be back in the pulpit. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do everything I can do to keep that from happening. And he looked at me and he goes, you what? I said, you know, for 30 minutes I've heard you whine about what's happened to you. I've not heard you say one thing about those eight women that you violated. I've not heard you say one thing about a church that you betrayed. I've not seen, heard you say one thing of remorse about a savior that you stabbed in the back. I've not heard you say one thing about the children of those women who, who will probably have a huge block in ever believing a preacher teach the word of God again. I've not heard one word out of you on that. Not one. You're sitting here talking 12 months in a pulpit. You've got some work to do, man. You've got some soul work. And here's what I would suggest to you, that you take a deep, hard look to see in your life if you really know Christ to begin with. Because if the Holy Spirit resides in your heart, there's going to be conviction in your heart, and I sense no conviction. Now, I'd be lying to you if I told you anything different. I will actively work against you. I will not assist you. Know it. Just know it. And then he had the cojones <laughs> to call me four weeks later to meet with four pastors in an accountability group to restore him. And I thought, well, maybe the guy's turned. So I go down to the meeting. And the first thing I know, he's got them on this 12-month thing. And one of them, some guy who's got a program on TBN, you know, and, you know, some big shot. And, and they're all buying it. And I said, hold on. I said, time out. Ho, ho. You guys are serious? You're talking about this guy getting back in 12 months? I said, I'm out. I'm out. There's no repentance in this guy's heart. Oh, you're judging him. You're dang right I'm judging him. 1 Corinthians 5, you ever read that? Paul says, those in the church we judge. You got a man living in sin with his father's wife. Even the pagans don't do that. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Nothing, but those in the church we judge. And you guys are giving this guy a hall pass. And show me the repentance. I'm out, I'm done. And I will actively work against you. Just know it. That's him beeping right now. <laughs> but what else? You know what? You know, Charles Spurgeon one time said that a fallen pastor should not be restored to the pulpit until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. It wasn't there. It just wasn't there. He was out of the will of God. All he wanted was back in. He wanted the limelight. He just, he loved it. 
He loved the ministry more than he loved Christ. He loved the adulation and the applause more than he loved Christ. And man, he could bring it. He was smooth. God help us. God help me. See, Steve, I thought you were going to talk about guidance. I am. I'm talking about guidance. After David confesses his sin all the way through the first seven verses, you know what the Lord says? After he, come clean, after, after he vomits his sin, after he repents, acknowledges it, doesn't hide it, doesn't PR it, after he just puts it all out, God, it's true. Oh, God, it's true. And then go read Psalm 51, and you'll see even more of it. In God's goodness and graciousness, you know what God says to him? David, now I'll instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. You say, why wouldn't God show him his will? You know a guy that's in sin, hard heart, all that? You say, well, why won't God show him his will? God is showing him. You know what the will of God is? That you come clean. That you deal with the sin. That's the will of God. Why should he give you anything? And why should he give you direction? For what? You won't obey him right here. I have seen, um, I've got to add this up, just off the top of my head in the last, I'm going to say two and a half years, three years, I've seen six men that, um, two pastors, four guys very, very involved in ministry, leaders in the church, uh, commit suicide. For at least two of them, it was because they got into sin. And they'd been found out. <clears throat> Flip over with me, if you would, to um, Psalm 103. I said 100, uh, Psalm 103, I'm sorry. Here's the deal. You see, let's say you're in sin, and let's say you say, well, I can't confess this. I can't confess this to the Lord. I can't. Yeah, you can. But, but you see, here's what happens. The enemy will start working on you, and he'll start lying to you, and he's been deceiving you the whole time. And, and, and see, there are times when we think, I can't go to the Lord. I, I'm in too deep. This is, this is so heinous. I, I can't. Watch, watch. I want you to see the grace and the loving kindness of Almighty God of our Savior. Psalm 103, verse 8. Why did these guys, these two guys, take their lives? Because ultimately, they couldn't accept forgiveness and grace. They felt like they had so ruined their lives that they could never recover and ever again have significant lives. That was the lie that was told them. It was. They might have taught this chapter, but they forgot it. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, 103.8 of Psalms. He is slow to anger. We are quick to anger. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now watch verse 10. This is where they missed it, if they took their lives over the grief and sorrow of sin. Look at this. He has not dealt with us according to our sin. 
gosh, is that good or what? See, that was their fear. He's going to deal with me my whole life because of my sin. No, he won't. Yes, there will be consequences. Yes, there will be. But God gives grace to sustain you even through the consequences. He will give grace. The consequences are the things that will keep you from going back. They're painful reminders. They are the guardrails. Consequences are the guardrails that keep us from making the same mistake again. And they are there by the goodness of God. But does that mean he withholds all favor? No. What does it say? He has not dealt with us according to our sin. Nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. If he did, we'd all be dead in hell. But he hasn't done that. Has he? See, we think he, you can't go on how you feel. You've got to go on what's true. You've got to put up the shield of faith. You've got to fight off the fiery darts of Satan when he says, you're finished, you're done. You'll never have a life again. That's a lie from the pit of hell. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19 says he cast our sins into the depths of the sea. They can't even be found. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. So what do we do? We come clean. We confess. We repent. And then to those sheep, you know what he says? I'll instruct you. Teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Ah, watch. But the next thing he says, don't be as the horse or as the mule, whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. When I give you a nudge in the rain, you go my way. You know what God wants for us? He wants us to be spiritual, world-class cutting horses. Oh yeah, that's what he wants. You go over to the Fort Worth Stock Show right now, they got some horses that are unbelievable. Unbelievable. The thing that makes them so un unbelievable and so good with herding cows, and I say this reverently, but every one of those horses had to be trained to the point that they would say to the rider, not my will, but thine be done. And I say that reverently. You got some strong-willed horses that had to be trained. They had to be trained so if there was just a flick of the reins, they're there. They're just a flick the other way, they're there. But back up, hmm, 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 stirrups, the nudging. You guys getting this? You ever gone to the beach somewhere on vacation and you rent some nag and you get on him? 
and you got your wife, and you think, oh, this will be so romantic, and you're into this horse doesn't give a rip about what you want to do. <laughs> he doesn't care if you want to go down and look at the sunset. You put him on there, he's going over there. He doesn't care. He knows you're some tourist, hadn't been on a horse since you were nine. <laughs> he could give a snot what you want to do. And it's the most frustrating, maddening experience in the world, riding a rented horse. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. So the Lord says to us, hey guys, I'll instruct you and I'll teach you. Will I show you the next nine months of your life? No, I don't do it that way. I'll give you grace for today and wisdom for today. I'll show you what to do today. And you say, Lord, show me your will, and you open your word, and you talk to some guys you know, and you trust their judgment. Hey, what do you think about this? You got a decision to make? You got godly counsel? You talk to your wife. Your wife knows the Lord. Loves her. Honey, what do you think? And you guys pray about it. You talk to a couple of others. What do you guys think? Everybody says, go this way. Then don't you go that way. Am I making sense? In an abundance of counselors, there's victory. So he nudges. See, here's the deal. He pulls you this way. Go. He holds you and you want to go, stop. 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 Oh, you know how long I've been sitting here? Shut up and stop. <laughs> right? Just wait, man. Just You're not the rider. You're the dumbass the rider's on. And I say that biblically. <laughs> Man, I feel better saying it, Scott. I got out of that one, didn't I? So don't send me any emails, all right? I got biblical precedence for that one. He loves us, doesn't he? He loves us. He loves us too much to give us our own way. Let's thank him for it. Lord, you will instruct us and you will teach us. I pray for the guys in here, Lord, that are really at a crossroads and unsure about a major decision. And it's getting so close to the edge, Lord. It's so close. But when they get there, it'll be there for them. Sometimes we think you'll never show up, but you always show up just in time. So we're going to wait we're not going to make a false move. We are trusting completely in you. For the guy who's here that has gotten himself in a real jam, I pray that your spirit would convince him that, that now is the time to deal with this. Let's handle it right now. Let's do business right now with the Lord. Let's come clean right now. Nothing good can continue in continuing. Do your work in, their, in, in hearts, Lord, right now. And don't let them fear. Let them trust. Let them know, Psalm 103, you're compassionate. You're for them. You're trying to save their lives. Pull them back in. 
restore to them the joy of their salvation. We are all great sinners, as John Newton used to say. We are all great sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. So it's in his name we pray and we thank him in advance for his guidance. In his name, amen.